The David and Goliath story is one of those biblical references that's crossed over into secular culture in a big way. An unranked sports team takes on a national championship winner. It's a David and Goliath story. A handful of protesters halts a meeting of the G8 heads of state. It's a David and Goliath story. A David and Goliath story is the story of an improbable winner winning against all odds. That's how our secular culture defines it. Malcolm Gladwell, who's been on the bestseller list with each of his five books in recent years, maybe you've read some of them or heard of them, books like The Tipping Point and Outliers. In his most recent book, he looks at the struggle between underdogs and favorites in all kinds of different settings, from sports to business to war, and why the odds on underdogs are actually a whole lot better than we realize. And what else would he call such a book but David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants? Gladwell argues that the things we usually count as advantages, like the achievement of significant wealth or fame or military power, are often sources of great weakness, both for individuals and for nations, and that great advantages often contain the seeds of human undoing. He also says that, in fact, it's often people who appear the most disadvantaged, people who've struggled with disability or profound loss or who have had to confront some major obstacle in their lives. These people, he says, have a chance to develop hidden strengths and abilities that the so-called advantaged among us will never possess. Hidden strengths and abilities that can make a lasting contribution to the world and make the world better as a whole. So if you were a betting person, Gladwell would say, put your money on the underdog. The odds are far better than you think. I like that. I like that a lot. Why? Because while our secular version of the David and Goliath story says it's about an underdog who surprises everyone and wins against all the odds, Gladwell says, no, that version of the story really gets it all wrong. And I agree with him. The biblical story is actually clear from the beginning. As soon as David heads down into the valley to meet Goliath in battle, with nothing but his slingshot and five smooth stones, David is the odds-on favorite. It's true that all kinds of people are surprised by his victory, including King Saul and his army, as well as Goliath and the whole Philistine army. Everybody's surprised. But that's because they either never knew or they've forgotten the character of the God who calls David to take on this giant in the first place. There was a lot at stake there in the Valley of Elah. Elah was in an area of ancient Palestine called the Shephala, a set of ridges and valleys that connected the Judean mountains to the east with the wide, flat coastal plain along the Mediterranean to the west. 
Many important battles have taken place there over the centuries because whoever controls that middle ground has easy access to Hebron, Bethlehem, and Jerusalem to the east, as well as unimpeded access to the Mediterranean to the west. Ancient Israel fought to control that middle ground so they could protect their capital from Western invasion and maintain access to trade by sea. The Philistines were a seafaring people from Crete that had moved into this coastal plain along the Mediterranean and had gradually gained strength. And in the second, by the second half of the 11th century BCE, they had started moving east, up the hill, threatening the stability of Israel, which had only recently united as a single kingdom. The Philistines' aim was to weaken Israel by once again separating them into two different kingdoms and to eventually gain control over the entire territory. So when we meet up with these two armies in our reading today, King Saul of Israel and his army have come down from the highlands and the Philistines have come up from the coast and they are encamped on either side on opposite ridges of this valley of Elah staring at each other in a a standoff. Neither one dares to move against the other because if they attack, they'd have to descend down a hill into the valley and come up the enemy's ridge, making a suicidal climb. They'd be absolutely vulnerable on the other side of the valley. So to finally break this stalemate and minimize the the loss of life, perhaps, the Philistines send their mightiest warrior to challenge Israel to to a one-to-one contest. They send Goliath, who stands, the Bible tells us, at nine feet six inches tall at the least, outfitted with the very best armor and weaponry, a giant, truly, and a terrifying figure by all accounts who shouts out to Israel and taunts them for 40 days. If our man Goliath, if I win against your man, you become our slaves. But if you send out a man to fight me and your man wins, then the entire Philistine army will become your slaves. Looking at outward appearances alone, there's not a man in the entire Israeli army who can stand a chance against Goliath. And David, who was never even a warrior before this, doesn't appear to stand much of a chance at all. But as Kathy told us last week about God's calling of David to become Saul's eventual successor as king, things are not always as they appear. David didn't appear to be the kingly type at all by the standards that we usually expect in kings and presidents. Yet David was chosen by God, and that is what matters. In our story today, Goliath, in all his strength, stands in opposition to the future and the hope that God has in store for his people Israel, that they would become and remain a people after God's own heart that they would be a light to the nations, a vision for the rest of the world of what it would look like for things to be done on earth as they are in heaven. 
In the time of Saul and David, God and the people of Israel are just kind of getting started, really, with God's experiment of forming this model people. And God isn't ready to give up on it yet. And that's ultimately what matters, that God is behind them. That is what gives David the victory. He stands on the side of God in history at that moment. David comes running at Goliath, saying, You come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Powered by courage and faith, says Gladwell, David charges at Goliath, catching him by surprise with a stone to the forehead. So before the giant can even begin to fight, his vulnerability is exploited by the wisdom of God who chooses someone least expected, someone weak. God often chooses, as we see through scripture, the foolish to shame the wise and equips them for battle with whatever tools they've got at their disposal. And down the giant goes. Malcolm Gladwell writes, You see the giant and the shepherd in the valley of Elah, and your eye is drawn to the man with sword and shield and the glittering armor. But so much of what is beautiful and valuable in the world comes from the shepherd, who has more strength and purpose than we ever imagine. What we see in the story today is that this strength and purpose of David is grounded in the hope of God. As the psalmist says in today's psalm, the Lord is known by his acts of justice. David knows him to be a God of justice. The wicked shall be given over to the grave, and also all the peoples that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. This is the God that David knows. So what lessons can we take from this story of David going up against Goliath to help us battle giants? Giants who stand in the opposition to God's hope for all people today and his hope for the creation Giants like racism, which we've seen projected in high-definition color across our American landscape this year, from Ferguson to Baltimore to Cleveland, and just this week, tragically, in Charleston. What can we take away from this story to help us stand against giants like growing economic inequality in this country and around the world? What can we take away to help us find families for the half a million children who are living in foster care in the U.S. today, or the estimated 153 million orphans around the world, so many of whom are forced into sex slavery or indentured servitude or war. What can we learn from this story to stand against any giant we face? First of all, I think this story tells us to trust God. 
that if we stand on the right side of history, on God's side of history, on the side of justice for the oppressed, then we are already fully equipped to battle giants, whoever we are, no matter how great or how small. Saul, King Saul, offers David his own set of armor to go with battle in battle to, with Goliath. He doesn't really trust God to provide. He thinks his armor, the, the best in the world, Saul, the king's armor, will do the trick or will at least help in this uh, unequal battle. But David rejects the king's armor. He tries it on. It doesn't fit him. He knows that he has to trust God with what he's been given, which is a slingshot, which has been, he's learned how to use as a shepherd protecting his sheep in the field. You don't have to be strong, in other words, or wealthy or educated at the best universities. You don't have to have much at all. And certainly, you don't need the best armor and weaponry in the world. You need, we need, to make sure that we're standing on the side of God's justice in history, and we need to depend on God with everything we've got. Fathers, on this Father's Day, think about how you can use your very ordinary fatherhood to do God's work in this world. Teach your children these stories that give them courage, and tell them about God's hope for the world. Raise children who carry that hope forward and who know that God shows no partiality for black or for white or for brown. Help them to know that and help them to live that. Parents, can you make room in your home for a child who doesn't have a family? Business people, think not just about the bottom line of the profits of your business, but of what you can do to create opportunity for those who have very little. Seniors, you may feel that you're at a point in your life where you have very little energy to take on a big project, any giant that we can name. You may feel that your time is running out to make a difference. You're wrong. You have incredible power. I think about all the time my mother-in-law spends shopping on the Home Shopping Network. <laughs> she could choose to spend her money for in companies with companies that practice good environmental standards, that pay living wages to their workers. So the second thing that we really, and I, I won't take terribly long in saying this, but the second thing that we can take away from this story in our effort to do God's work in this world today, to battle giants around us, is the knowledge that small is beautiful. It keeps us humble to know that we can just work in ordinary places with ordinary tools and that we don't need to do great things or have great advantages at our disposal. It keeps us humble, and it keeps God as the right object of our worship instead of ourselves. In God's hands, 
The third thing we can take away from this is that in God's hands, even the smallest thing can become great. Jesus taught us that about mustard seeds. David, this lowly shepherd, is made king. Mother Teresa's order that she founded, the Missionaries of Charity, is the only order that is growing in membership in the Roman Catholic Church today. A thousand years after David stood up to Goliath, Jesus showed us how to keep faith in the hope of God, that we could come one day to do things on earth as they are done in heaven. He taught us to pray for God's kingdom to come daily and to daily take up our cross and serve that future faithfully till it comes with whatever tools we have at our disposal. And what is it that scripture says about 10,000 years are like a day to him? Perhaps God is even now, 2,000 years after Jesus, still at the very beginning of his experiment with us and is waiting and longing for us to step forward with whatever tools we've got and to run headlong at those giants of our time and to trust God with the victory. Amen.